We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you uh, who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been to the clubhouse before, welcome home. To those listening to the podcast, I'm sorry you don't get to see this, but uh, Sinatra, the clubhouse doorman, has decided to join the, uh, the show. So if you hear snoring during this podcast, trust me, nobody has fallen asleep. It's just a little French bulldog doing his thing. Uh, but tonight, please join me in welcoming our special guest, Peter Efros, the author of Jewish Major Leaguers in Their Own Words, Tw- Oral Histories of 23 Players. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Uh, so I think the, the, to start us off... If you could just let us know how this book came about, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a very interesting... I think there's been 165 major Jewish major leaguers. That's correct. And you have an oral history with 23 of them in the book. Right. That's and correct. if you could just let us know how uh, those 23 came about, as well as how this even book project came about. Sure. Well, my, my involvement in the book project started in the summer of 2004. Um, I was working as an uh, editor for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Uh, okay, I was w- sir. I was working as an editor for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, and I was asked to cover an event uh, honoring Jewish major leaguers that was up at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. And while I was up there covering this very interesting event, um, I met a guy named Martin Abramowitz, who many in the audience and many listening on the podcast might know had been um, involved in kind of publicizing uh, all the Jewish guys who had played Major League Baseball and was in the midst of producing several card sets, baseball card sets about uh, Jewish players. Um, So I stayed in touch with Martin, and he uh, told me that they were working on a book, um, and they were looking for people to interview some players. So my first involvement was I traveled down to Texas in the winter of 2005 to interview a player named Mickey Rutner who had the proverbial cup of coffee in the majors in 1947. I had a great time meeting um, Mr. Rutner and spending time with him and his wife. And uh, a few years after that, Martin asked me to take over the reins of editing the book. Um, And so the interviews that are in the book are a a combination of interviews that were done in the 1970s and 80s as part of an American Jewish Committee project where they interviewed well-known Jewish figures. So a lot of the older players, um, Al Rosen, Cal Abrams, Saul Rogovin, uh, Hank Greenberg, um, shouldn't mention them less, um, you know, are from that collection. And then Martin and his group, Jewish Major Leaguers, commissioned several more um, interviews as well and put all together, along with some that came from a, a confirmation project of a Jewish teenager uh, back in the, uh, in the 80s also. Those were added into the collection. I edited them down, and the result of the, is the book. Wow, very interesting. And so let's start with how the book starts. Uh, there's a ball player. We have a very knowledgeable crowd in the clubhouse, by the way, just so you know when we get to the questions. Right, I'm sure. Uh, but it opens with a ball player that even some of them may not know too much about, mm-hmm. let alone the people listening to the podcast. Uh, Bob Berman, a catcher for the Washington Senators. Since he starts your book, let's, let's start with him. Right, so Bob Berman is, is really, I think, typifies the book. I mean, I think if people, even those who know about Jewish baseball players, you know, Koufax, Hank Greenberg, maybe if they're 
better fans of the game, they'll know, um, you know, Al Rosen, he won an MVP, he was a great player. And, and those people may be slightly older and know some of the mid-century guys. But Bob Berman is really what typifies what I think is strong about the book, is that you learn about players you just have never heard of. And the story that's in the book about Berman, he talks about the, 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 the ribbing he was getting for being a Jewish player back on the Washington Senators in 1918. And what's fascinating about it is the legendary Walter Johnson, you know, stands up for him and really says, you know, if you're going to, um, you know, give this guy a hard time for being Jewish, you know, that's ridiculous and you need to go through me first. So it really tells a lot about Walter Johnson that he was willing to stand up for, for Bob Berman. That's fantastic. And I think what we'll do is we'll maybe pick out a few of the guys that you mentioned that are, that are written about in the book. And then we can talk about some major themes, so to speak. Sure. Uh, but if we continue to go on with a few of the guys who are, are a little interesting in their own ways, everyone's interesting in their own way, but there's uh, a bit of a ladies' man, uh, Andy Cohen. If you could just talk about him a bit. Yeah, well, Andy Cohen was, was brought up, actually, um, by John McGraw, um, the, you know, the longtime New York Giants manager, to kind of be the great Jewish hope. Um, uh, he had a, a, at least one strong season, but he never kind of lived up to that again. He was sent back down, I think, uh, to Newark. And just as he tells it, just about when he was going to get called back up, he had an injury and never made it back up. But, you know, what comes through in the, in the interview is you, you get the sense from some of these players what kind of people they were. And Andy Cohen was just kind of the, the kind of guy who enjoyed life. And you can tell that from the stories. And he talks about how he, he had this reputation as a ladies' man, and then he kind of denies it a little bit and he says oh but you know there were a lot of women around the hotel who wanted his number and he never shied away from giving it to him so <laughs> you get the sense that he enjoyed himself <laughs> I'm sure and then uh, I guess at a different uh, end of the spectrum we have uh, Saul Rogovin with uh, had a little uh, narcoleptic uh, yeah. background yes <laughs> Saul suffered from uh, undiagnosed narcolepsy and uh you know, it really was a problem because he would, as he talks about it, he would, could be, you know, it could happen at any time and it was brought on by stress. So he could be on the dugout between innings and if he was feeling stressed out, he might just conk out. And it, it for the other players and the fans, they, they took that to mean that he didn't really care about, about baseball because it, they meant he wasn't giving it his all. But in fact, it was just the fact that he had a disease. And it was too bad because Saul actually, you know, had some very strong years. Um, I think he led the uh, AL and ERA one year. But one wonders if he, if he would have gone on a little farther if he had had this narcolepsy diagnosed earlier. He later became a New York City public school teacher, inter interestingly enough, before, before passing away. You know, that was the day ballplayers, you know, I was just speaking about that. We were speaking about that before. Right. You know, ballplayers didn't make the kind of money they do today. So they had to work in the off season. Some of the players talked about pumping gas, you know, and saw when he finished playing, he still had to make a living. So he went back to school, got his degree, and became a school teacher for about 20 years. Just out of interest, uh, this has nothing to do with baseball, yeah. but did the, how, how did the narcolepsy uh, impact his being a teacher? <laughs> Usually it's the other way around. Exactly. Yeah. I think by that time he had been diagnosed and, and took medication, and I also think not being on the ball field with all the pressures helped him as well. All right, so now let's go to a, a guy that some of the people in here may know of as a ball player. Some may know why he's in the book, and others will be shocked that he's in the book, uh, Elliot Maddox. Right, so, so Elliot is a, one of the most interesting people in the book, so I'm glad, I'm glad you asked me about that. 
you know, he grew up in uh, New Jersey, not too far from here. Um, African-American guy, kind of always had Jewish friends, uh, had a Jewish uh, baseball coach, and became very interested in Judaism. Then when he went to college at, at the University of Michigan, he started taking courses. And uh, one of the courses was Jewish history, and he felt that he really identified as, as, a, as an African-American with, with Judaism and, and, you know, slavery and Exodus kind of stories. And he pursued that more when he was a player. And actually, when he was, you know, here playing in New York, he, he formally converted with the rabbi in Queens, um, became a Jewish player, all the while while he was still putting up um, Black Power posters in his locker of, of Angela Davis and he like if anybody knows <laughs> Elliot he's not he's not a shy there's a couple of people in the book who are not shy the ones that I've met I'd say Elliot and probably Ron Bloomberg are the two more outgoing ones um, and Elliot you know and you get this from the book he really liked to tweak what was going on so um, you know he liked to give Ted Williams a hard time when he was managing him but you know Elliot seriously pursued Judaism and I haven't confirmed this but I did hear that he actually had a bar mitzvah a few years ago at, at a summer camp so he really and he identifies with both his African American past and his and, and the Judaism that he adopted. So he's a real interesting guy. Yeah, and not a bad player. Not very <laughs> yeah. I think if I remember correctly, he hurt himself on the drain at uh, at Shea Stadium. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. He talks about that and, and the, the, the I think the less than ideal tr- medical treatment he got from the from the Yankees at the time. Um you know, which is he's not the only player to, to talk about that. You know, there's a lot of pressure to get back on the field, yeah. but that really did kind of curtail his career. Absolutely. Then another name that, uh, you know, as a Goldberg, no one would be surprised. Uh, but if you could talk about Jose Bautista. Yeah. So, so Jose Bautista is an interesting guy because he, uh, you know, came, you know, he's from the Dominican Republic and uh, found out that, you know, he, although his family was kind of nominally Christian, that they also celebrated Jewish holidays. And he identifies with that side of his family. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a controversy for a while, but I think, I think th- those who, who, who judge these things now accept that, you know, he is a Jew and he identifies with that side of himself. But you, you wouldn't think of him. And, you know, there's a small Jewish community in the Dominican Republic, right. but it's not a place you think of a lot of Jews living. But, but he's one of them. And then the last player that I want to touch on just by players is, I believe, the last player in the chronology, uh, Adam Greenberg. Right. So uh, probably a lot of people listening or, or here today know about Adam, you know, who was uh, hit in, his, in the head in, his only, in the first pitch of his uh, bat, only at bat, back in 2005 with the Cubs. Um, suffered horrible medical problems afterward, developed vertigo, um, and, and never really made it back to who he was. Uh, bounced around a couple minor league teams, then played up with the Bridgeport Bluefish for several years, and then finally last year the uh, Marlins gave him after this one at bat campaign. He got one more at bat, um, which I have to say I found a little bit um, anticlimactic. I met Adam. I did the did that interview up in Connecticut um, a few years ago. Nicest guy, and he finally gets us at bat that he had been waiting for for years after he got hit in the head and three pitches strikes out against R.A. Dickey. And that's it. Um, and he's still playing, actually. He signed back on with the Bridgeport team this year. And I think he just, I, I, you know, one hopes that he can get another call-up. But it seems a little bit unlikely at this point. But but w- w- one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. So. And just, uh, uh, I'm going to call to the bullpen on one of our uh, guests, uh, Lee Lowenfish, who's here, who happens to be an Orioles fanatic. 
I believe he was signed by the Orioles. Did he get through spring training? I think they released him at the end of spring training. That's right. Yeah, they did. They signed him on. And I thought that was a little strange, too. If you're going to sign him on in December and give him a shot, could bring him to double A, give him a shot. But, you know, I know the Orioles had a lot of outfielders, you know, both at their major league and triple A level. But I, I still thought, you know, but maybe it's my... You know the, the you want yeah I want yeah, you want yeah. the kind of guy you want to root for nice right. guy makes it to the major leagues gets hit in the head one at bat one pitch even so you want him to you know to make good but you know I'm sure the Orioles gave him a shot didn't think he was you know deserving to stay with with the team and and decided the right thing to do was to let him go and if we can there's a couple of themes that run throughout the book if we can maybe if if you could just talk about a little bit about each theme and then we'll get to our questions. From the audience, uh, but one is naturally in a book like this, you're gonna it's gonna uh, touch on the high holidays and how that impacts each individual. If you could just talk a little bit about that in general, sure. I mean, I think that's one of the things I want to let people know about the book is I think we've kind of focused on a couple of these players, and there's this natural tendency as Jews to kind of heroize players, and I think that's a great thing to do. But I also think it's good to kind of move beyond that and to kind of learn about the history of these players um, and one of that is with the high holidays question you, you know and I'm thinking about a player like Jesse Levis you know who wasn't Koufax who wasn't Greenberg and he talks in the book about how he was fasting on um, Yom Kippur one year but he wasn't going to tell his manager that he wasn't going to play because you know Jesse Levis got into about you know 30 games a year as a backup and he didn't know how his manager would react so he when he was sent in the game, he, he went into play. And, he, you know, he struck out. And then after the game, um, you know, some reporter asked him about it. And it got up to, to, to Bud Selig, who was then owning the, the Brewers, where he was playing. He's now the longtime commissioner, who kind of relayed the information down to the manager, Phil Garner, who kind of apologized for putting him in the game when he hadn't had anything to eat or drink that day. Um, and I think that's the, real, the reality for a lot of these players. It's, not, it's, it's a little harder when you're not Koufax or Greenberg to opt out. Um, and, you know, Levis jokes that, you know, that was a, he didn't get a hit the rest of the year and that God kind of punished him for playing. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, to, to, uh, since we're all in this clubhouse together, just a little plug for a, one of our most recent books. Uh, John Rosengren, the author, wrote uh, Hank Greenberg, Hero of Heroes, which is a fantastic book. To those of you listening, I strongly suggest you get it. And the way the book opens, the opening chapter is called Lashana Tova, and it opens with Hank Greenberg at his locker in street clothes on the morning of Rosh Hashanah, not knowing if he should get out of the street clothes and get into uniform. And that's how the story starts. And right. it's really, a, it's a beautiful book. Yeah. Uh, and he played, you know, I remember right. when he played on Rosh Hashanah, right. he didn't play on, on Yom Kippur. Yeah. So, you know, it was always a, it was always a question of, you know, when to play and when not to play. Yeah, absolutely. Another theme that runs throughout the book, obviously, is uh, anti-Semitism on and off the field. And if you could just touch on that as well. Sure. I mean, what, what comes through, and, and this won't surprise a lot of people, is that it was just a, a, a more a present part of life, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. You just knew that you were going to make, uh, get comments uh, made about being Jewish. Um, just like Italian players were going to get comments about that. You know, I'm Harry Danning, who was a pretty good catcher for the Giants back in the 30s. Um, you know, he, was, he had a, a, a rather prominent nose, and he used to get a lot of comments that, you know, 
how could he see the, the pit, how, how could he see the ball go by with such a big nose? Um, but you know, a lot of the players they, they knew like they tried to ignore it. But if ignoring it didn't work, then you knew that you had to kind of like put your fists up and fight. Um, and one who was certainly not shy about doing that was Al Rosen. You know, who had been a uh, you know pretty uh, strong boxer before he became a baseball player, and it was known that he you know if you messed around with Rosen, you were going to get it. Um, but even some of the less pugnacious players knew that. You, you were at some point in your career, you're going to have to put up your fists, and that's something I think that did change. Just as society changed, um, that that changed as well in the last say 30 years or so. And then something that uh, naturally uh, would follow off of that is that it seems like another theme is that there, were, at, well, at a certain point in baseball history, that there were bonds formed between Jewish players and black players for obvious, some obvious reasons. So if you could just talk about that a little. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the Jewish players, just as in the rest of society, Jews kind of identified um, with black players, and there are examples of this in the book. Um, Cal Abrams talks about, you know, when he made a play throwing behind Jackie Robinson at first base. You know, Robinson gets a hit, rounds first rather widely, and Abrams tries to catch him, you know, taking that wide turn and going back. And that in Abrams' telling, Robinson looked up at him and smiled at him. And he kind of, in Abrams' telling, that he was kind of looking at him saying, from like a, a black to a Jew, like, I respect that you're smart enough to do that. You know, whether or not that's actually true, who knows, but Abrams remembered it that way. Um, and Hank... He was teammates. They wanted He was with Pittsburgh both at, by then. Right, at the time. They had, they had been teammates. Right, but Abrams went on to play with right, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, maybe the White Sox, I don't remember. Right, 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 right. But you are right; they were teammates for a while. And um, you know, there's the famous story of Hank Greenberg, you know, telling Jackie Robinson, you know, I know a little bit of what you faced. You know, hang in there; we're all kind of rooting for you. Um, there's a story in the in the book of um, of Ed Mayer being in the minor leagues with a, a black player who wasn't allowed to get a, a coke out of um, out of a coke machine down south, and there was a slur used against him and. And Ed Mayer, you know, put the money in the machine for him and took care of the situation. So, you know, I think there was that bond feeling. At the same time, um, you know, Al Rosen talks about the limits that they had, that, you know, you, you could see things that were going wrong. The blacks, you know, down south couldn't stay in certain hotels and eat in certain restaurants, and he felt that he was kind of limited in what he was going to, you know, what he could do. So I think, you know, I think that's similar to what, what happened in society. You know, there are some things you could do and some things you couldn't do until things really changed starting in the 60s. And uh, since we got a call from the clubhouse there, from the crowd, any uh, any other questions? Uh, who would like to lead it off? It's not really a question, but two of my favorite stories are when Abrams came up about the same time that Anthony came up. The headline on one of the newspapers was Mantle Schmantle, we got Abrams. That was one of my favorite stories. My other favorite story is when Sandy Koufax didn't pitch on the Kippa and uh, uh, Drysdale. Huh? Dropped down Drysdale. Uh, Drysdale was pitching, Drysdale was batted around, and the manager came out to take the ball from him and he said, I heard you wish I was Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. Frank. Mo, Mo Berg tells about him. Oh, sure. So, um, 
Mo Berg was, you know, kind of the, the classic good field, no hit catcher. And, and the joke about Berg was always, you know, that he could speak seven languages, but he couldn't hit in any of them. But he, had, he hung around a long time. But um, and uh, Mo Berg is almost more famous for what he did off the field. Um, he was involved in some in some OSS activities it's during fine. the war. Yeah, and um, did some stuff when the, the baseball players toured Japan. But I think he didn't. The highest building in, in Tokyo was the department store, and he had all the players posing them, but really he was photographing the skyline behind them. Right, right. Also, he went to Germany, I believe, during the war to kind of investigate to kind of investigate what was going on with their atomic project. There was a, there was a conference in Zurich, uh-huh. and the story is, which I don't believe, was that he actually was authorized to kill Heisenberg. Right. Right, but I think, right, he, he was trying to figure out what Heisenberg was up to. Now, un- unfortunately, after the war, and you know, there's a great book about about this, you know, The Catcher Was a Spy. Right. Fantastic book. He, uh, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, he had a breakdown or he just didn't have it all together. He never really settled. He lived kind of as an itinerant, traveling from, you know, cheap hotel to relative to cheap hotel and never really settled down from, the, say, the end of the war until uh, when, he, when he passed away. About Mickey Breitner, he, uh, Elliot Asimov was a friend of Breitner right. and used him as the man on Spice. Correct. Did, did you know Azenoff, and, and did, did Rutner talk about that in your interview? Yeah, Ru- Rutner did talk about Azenoff. They were good friends. They had been teammates. And certainly Azenoff um, uh, modeled. Uh, I think he, I, I'm trying to remember, he called him something like Elliot Kuttner or something in Man on Spikes or something. <laughs> um, but I, I did try to reach Azenoff. Unfortunately, it was very soon before he passed away. It was a couple years ago. And um, he wasn't really up to talking anymore, which was too bad because he, he was an interesting about guy. But yeah, there's no there's no doubt. It's a, you know, it's a great it's a great baseball novel, you know, Man on Spikes. You know, and Azenoff is better known for writing you know Eight Men Out, which later became the basis. His telling of that story became the basis for John Sayles' movie by the same title. In your book, there's a list of uh, the 65 yeah. Jewish players who. They made, were in the major leagues at least Yeah, I think those lists. It's one of those funny questions. It's like a who is a Jew question applied to baseball, obviously, and it gets a little silly at some point. But I think the person, the player, had to be Jewish during their playing days. I think the guys who compile their list—that's the way they base it. Um, I thought you were going to ask me about Rod Carew, because usually people ask me about Rod Carew, and the story is that he married a Jewish woman, raised his kids as Jewish, but never officially converted. But I always joke that we, I wish we had him because he would raise the overall <laughs> Jewish batting average, you know, quite a bit. <laughs> I don't see the list, but I've always been curious about Vic I think I think I'm I'm thinking Italian, not Jewish. Well, then he was he was he was a Latino Jew. You're thinking of Rashi. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, <laughs> and Johnny Kling. 
Yeah, Johnny Kling's one of those guys. That there's a whole controversy right now. We're leaning on the on the non side for Johnny Kling, but a few years ago, I think we were leaning on the yes side. That's what I'm saying. These things. Who that, is we? Well, there's, there's a whole cottage industry of people, you know, who look. Who look oh, there is there is an industry. Yeah. Yeah. There's all there's a business. I mean, I'm part of the business now, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't uh, disrespect him. Did you No, I don't think Bo's Jewish. Not but I think again we thought he was for a while. But <laughs> but of course, he pitches a no hitter. We'll take him. Then he goes out to <laughs> Van Dorn. Maybe not. That could have had an impact. Actually, the good thing though is that in the book, which everybody can purchase, is this list of the 165 players, and part of that, one of the names on that list, on page 212. Uh, for those of you listening, once again, page 212, Jewish Major Leaguers in Their Own Words by Peter Efros, uh is a man who happens to be here tonight. I believe he is never lost a game. In the, he's undefeated in the Major League. He has no losses. Bob Tufts, uh, who's in the book, who, who's, who's on the list, is here tonight in the clubhouse. So, unfortunately, for those of you listening, you won't be able to enjoy it. As Frank takes a phone, both the bullpen phone has, uh, has gone off. Coming in from the bullpen is uh, uh, about to start with the Mets next week. Uh, it's quite a scene in the clubhouse. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, uh, maybe I do need one of those beers. <laughs> but anyway, Bob will. Uh, you should definitely mingle. To those who are fortunate enough to be here, please talk to Bob. It's a, he has quite a story. As a matter of fact, for those of you, if you don't mind, no, please. since we have a little time, if I can ask Bob kind of just to tell in brief his story as a, someone who went to Princeton, obviously to be on the list, 6'5", uh, probably not on the list. So uh, if you could just give us a little brief synopsis of your story, uh, it would be fascinating. Totally on ball. Grew up in Massachusetts, went to Princeton, played baseball, got an MBA at Columbia, went to Wall Street, got cancer, myeloma, which I just beat. Now I teach down the road at NYU, also at Yeshiva University and Manhattanville College, as you know, career number three or four, whatever it is. But I, during the time, actually, this before I made the major leagues, went through the conversion process for through Rabbi Shelley Ezring. I think he's still up in Syracuse, where's the Shazes in his congregation. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, shall we say, a very unique experience. I kept it quiet because I did not know how Frank Robinson would react or the evangelical players. Ironically, Dan Quisenberry and Gary LaBelle very accepted the process once I finally told people when I was complete. Uh, if word leaked out or as it was going, did, did you encounter anti Semitism? Oh, that was the best part. <laughs> I didn't tell people, so I'd hear everything. I was right. kind of that was an invisible man-like situation. <laughs> so I learned what doing someone down meant to a southerner. Okay, I heard that one. That's interesting. I would hear off-the-wall comments left and right from people. My favorite was Gene Pence, who briefly pitched for the Pirates. In the middle of a triple-A game in Tucson, in the bullpen, turned to me and went, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Totally out of the blue. And I turned back and went, well, funny you mentioned that. <laughs> the process of converting to Judaism. 
And he had like bushy hair. He kind of looked like uh, Gene Shallon on steroids. <laughs> and he went, "Well, you're just going to hell." And crossed his arms and went back to watch the game. <laughs> okay, so let my soul stay out there in eternal damnation. Thank you. I know I'm doing the right thing. <laughs> now there weren't as many, so many Jewish players back when you played. But did as you were converting, Zero. right? Did you try to make common? You know, cause with any of the any of there the players. There was one actually. There was a gap. I think for a period of time, I might have been the only as a convert at that point. But Mark Gilbert played for right. the White Sox. Was right. there? I played with him in the minors. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, he and his wife thought I was Jewish, but I didn't mention it. And we're in a van in Louisville. It's a hundred degrees. The van doors are open. And he goes, we have a minion. Let's go. Calls the door. <laughs> and the broadcaster laughs, and I laugh. And Mark just turns to me and goes. Thought so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was that gap. I mean, there there were kind of a strong uh, preponderance of Jewish players in the 30s and 40s. I mean, that's when the New York Giants actually had four players on the field who were Jewish at one time. And um, throughout in, into the 60s, but as Bob points out, kind of in the 80s, I guess late 70s and into the 80s was kind of a you know a time when we were in the desert, we could say. Myself, Jeff Newman, right. Steve Yeager, um, Elliot, yeah. and... All right, right. And now we've kind of, in the last three years, kind of hit, you know, a little bit of a boon, you know. You know, Ian Kinsler and Euclid and Ryan Braun. And by the way, I did offer to do something with Adam Greenberg. He had one at bat at Wrigley Field, got hit in the head. Yeah. And he went to pitch at Wrigley Field, hit Mike Lum in the head. <laughs> I said, I should be proud <laughs> to pitch to Adam Greenberg, whoever the Cubs are playing the last game of the year. They sign him one day, I sign him one day, and we go at it. It would have been perfect. Knowing, knowing the Cubs, I'm surprised they didn't send, sign you up for, for a longer term contract right now. <laughs> I mean, I think it's more than just coincidence. Um, off the top of my head, I think it might just be a wanting to recognize a part of Jewish history that we've left out. Like, we have the stereotype that, that Jews are doctors, lawyers, business people. But we're not supposed to be athletic, right? That's not, that's not our stereotype. So in addition to the baseball players, there have been some books out about, in the last few years, about Jewish gangsters. Right, there was that book that Rich Cohen did about Jewish gangsters. So again, kind of trying to break the mold of but who Jews are. Yeah. It's about Jewish gangsters. Right, right, right. There's another one. So I think it's just trying to fill out the portrait. Like it's looking back at our history and saying, here's like a neglected aspect of it. That and that's that's the only thing I can say. Also, isn't it easier to do research? That might be true. I mean, these 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 documents are being found. You know, we have to rely on. Remember, Art Howell, uh, just, it would take months and now you could do it in a week and all that. Is the ball player on the Cubs by the name of Feldman, is he Jewish? He is. He's actually one of about, I think we have about 10 or so right now. He's actually having his best year. I think he's unbeaten, if I'm not, if I'm not no, mistaken. No, he's he's lost, lost a couple, lost a couple games, but he's, he's about. He's a great hitter. He's a great hitter. He's a great hitter as well. Yeah, he's, he's having, he's he's having a strong, the strongest year, Scott Feldman. I have to be a Chicago Cubs fan. Well, so. That 
It was just one year. It, it, it lasted one year. You, uh, yeah, there's a book about you that. Were you a manager? No. no yeah, no. No, no, no. I mean, I think it was... I think oh. they were trying to graft on a sport that's not native to, to Israel. And if you read the book, uh, Pitching in the Promised League, I think it's called. I mean, what he, they didn't even have fields. They didn't even have, you know, they, were, they had one real baseball field and a couple other ones that they tried to, you know, slap together at the last minute. So that was a problem. And salaries, putting together a whole new league is a very difficult thing to do with salaries and so on and so forth. So I think they were just up against it. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that I think you said there are ten actively now. Can you just sort of frame where we are today in the arc of Jewish made believers? I mean, what factors have you know, lead to increases and why there may be more in a certain period than were in other periods? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is there were there was a, there were a decent number kind of in the the sons of immigrant generation. So those are like what I term like the 30s, 40s guys, you know, like Perry Danning and Al Rosen and even Cal Abrams, Saul Rogovin, guys who had pretty de- decent careers. And then kind of it starts to wane for several, it's kind of the, during the suburbanization period of American Jewry. And then I think, I mean, the only way to look at it is to say Jews were kind of focused on moving into the professions and it wasn't such a big deal to have Jews be baseball players. And now we've kind of moved past that. Like we've, Jews have established ourselves here. And now, you know, the sons are free to kind of go back and, and play again and play ball. Um, and, you know, many of the players now are also of, of mixed parentage, where you get into kind of questions of are they Jewish or not, but it also shows that Jews have arrived here and have made it so they can go out and, and, and play ball and spend their time playing ball. So colleges, I mean, college baseball is a big thing now. Sure. It wasn't in the old days. You know. Right, right. So you have someone like Craig Breslau, I think, is a college grad. Sure, there are others that, that I've forgotten, but you're right. Yeah. But there's a couple other ethnic questions. Sure. One year at Saturday Night Live, there were no Jewish writers. So Jews not going into comedy. That's even more serious than Jews not going into baseball. <laughs> that, is, that is a tragic affair. Yeah. And, and the other situation is the real ethnic situation is why aren't there that many blacks and African Americans playing baseball in the comedy? Yeah. It's the lowest percentage since, since the 50s. Yeah. And it's, it's a question that has no answer, but getting to the answer, of course, that's the interesting part. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's become baseball. I mean, the way I look at it is that baseball has become kind of a white sport, you know, with a lot of players from Latin America. Uh, basketball has become kind of an African-American sport, and only football is really drawing on both, on both populations. But I think baseball has become not an attractive sport for a lot in the African-American. And I know Major League Baseball is doing a lot about it, and some of the players, like a Jimmy Rollins, I think some of the players who are African-American are trying to do stuff about it. But it's gotten, you know, sports come in, in the, get put into boxes like anything else. You know, Just a comment on the poor problem with Jesse Lavers and fasting. Yeah. You talk about how big football's become. I went to Wisconsin also, and Gabe Karimi, the tackle, who now plays for the Bears, is Jewish. And whenever the Yom Kippur game occurred, they got a dispensation. He was on IVs all, <laughs> and then and and so that so if the game occurred in the daytime, that was they counted that. You know, yeah. they had took the IV out and fed him. Right, so li- liquids are okay, right? Yeah. That, under that, under that that ruling by the rabbi. Yeah. 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 Tell that story of the Levis where one game he was catching and Al Clark was one way umpire who was Jewish. 
the pitcher, I think it was a Milwaukee then, was also Jewish. Right. Uh, and, the, and, and the batter was Jewish. And he says, okay, I can't remember who the pitcher was, but since it's probably the only time in Middle East history where that happened, how thought having to point that out to him yeah. at the moment, you know, that uh, we're all Jewish here. Yeah, there might have been one other case of that when Jimmy Reese was was hitting way back when, but yeah, that's a rare that, that's a rare occasion. And Al Clark's father was a sports writer in Trenton, so he could have been writing the game. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you had another one about players playing young core of Al Yellen pitcher. Sure. He finally is called up the Houston Colt forty fives with Harry Kraft as his manager and gets told he's gonna pitch. He had no idea what to do. And his mother basically said, No, you're not going to play this. I got a idea deal with Harry Kraft, Southerner, Tobacco Tune, whatever. Kraft actually said, I understand your heart was not going to be that day. And they moved the game so his first start was on a different date. And so there were people that basically, you know, got something. At least you're not going to play well today, so at least I'm not going to play you, versus I respect the religion. Just another story that I'm reminded of, although a big argument, you know, in the book and, and elsewhere is that Jews were, you know, we were major league players. But I, I just like the story so much, I always like to tell it, is that Mike Epstein, who was a pretty good player in his own right, was on the Senators. And uh, Ted Williams, you know, the legendary Ted Williams was his manager. And it's a spring training game, so they're playing the, uh, the, the Cincinnati Reds. And, you know, Johnny Bench walks over, you know, and says, you know, Ted Williams, you know, Mr. Williams, I never do this, but it's a spring training game, and I've always admired you, you know, can you um, sign this ball for me? And Ted Williams says, sure, and he says, you know, to, to Johnny Bench, you know, a future Hall of Famer, Ted Williams. A couple minutes later, Pete Rose walks over and says, does the same thing, and Ted Williams says, sure, to, you know, to a future Hall of Famer, you know, Pete Rose, signed Ted Williams. And then Mike, Mike, <laughs> didn't, it didn't work out in that case, but for other reasons, for Pete Rose. But then a few minutes later, Mike Epstein starts to think, you know, he's like, you know, Ted Williams is not the most approachable guy, and he's my manager, but I would like to have a signed baseball from Ted Williams. So he says, you know, Skip, can, can you sign a baseball for me? And, and the baseball comes back, something like, you know, to Mike Epstein, wherever you're playing next year, good luck. <laughs> Any other uh, questions from the clubhouse crowd? Sam? I can just tell you, you were talking about anti-Semitism and so forth, and how it sometimes rears its ugly head. Uh, I, I used to represent the union uh, where Todd Shipyards were. They were all, you know, uh, we used to, it was a shipbuilder's union. We don't build ships here anymore, but the, man, the president of the union, who didn't realize that he had any anti-Semitism in him, He's a tremendous baseball fan. And he was telling me the story about how a game was lost. He said, Do you remember when she was recorded the play by Richie Ashburn Street? And, and nobody else would ever figure that a guy would remember that the guy who was out of the plate was a Jewish guy. And Richie Ashburn, you know, there was a play that normally he didn't have a great arm, but this one wrestled. And then we threw him out of the plate and right, that, that was Cal. That was Cal Abrams, and he actually talks about the story in the book. And it was actually something that he had a hard time living down, and he really claimed that it wasn't it, it, it wasn't his fault. It was a Right, so Ashburn had come in. Right. So he was coming in, and Milt Stock got fired. 
Right, right. Third base coach got fired, and that was, that was uh, Abrams's point. Is like I shouldn't have been sent at all. It wasn't because I was slow. He had this bad reputation for being a slow-footed runner. It was like I shouldn't have been sent. I shouldn't have been sent through. But it was a big. It was a big deal. I could never get over the fact that a guy would remember the guy that was thrown out of the plate. Uh, right, that he was Jewish. Like why yeah. did that? Why did that matter? I mean, you know, uh, he didn't even realize. You know what he was saying. That's the way he was talking. Okay. David, did you have a question? Oh, thank you. Um, I'm Peter's brother, but I'm not a plant. You have to believe me. Anyway, so two things. I know for the Red Sox, either late last season or early this season, they had Craig Breslau pitching to Ryan LeBarnway. Oh, yeah, the battery. Yeah, Yeah, and a few years ago, we we were just talking about that before this, that the Red Sox had three players on the field at the same time, which is the American League. American League Jewish record. (laughs) I I haven't consulted the list recently, but this is... One was John Lowenstein. Uh, who no, was, he's not Jewish. He, he was, okay. And then the other question is, were there any players that you approached who um, refused for some reason or another to be in the book? They, didn't, they wanted to just be known as a ball player and not specifically a Jewish yeah. ball player. It's a good question, but um, there were a few players that didn't want to be in the book, but they were for other reasons. Either they didn't like the interview that was done because it was done 30 years ago and some of their views had changed, or one player who I... I don't want to name because I don't want to embarrass him. He said he's interested in writing his own um, memoir one day, and he thought this would take away from that. But no one shied away because they, I, they, they, they were Jewish. Did you interview Jim Bond? No. Again, I believe birth... I mean, I know he was adopted, so I think... I think he was born Birth, birth father, Jewish, but adopted by the Palmers, who were, who were not Jewish. Right. Um, the Phillies general manager. Yeah, but he's converted. Yeah, pretty sure he is Jewish as well. Also, yeah. He converted when he was his mother, his mother uh, was Jewish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll yield to Jay on this one because I haven't, I haven't. I remember I have a lot about of friends that, who are Phillies fans, so I hear about it all the time. <laughs> all right. If we don't have any other questions, we can. We're going to mingle with Peter, with Bob, with Lee, with all the other experts. Uh, for those of you at home listening to the podcast or wherever you may be, uh, please go out and get the book Jewish Major Leaguers in Their Own Words, Oral Histories of 23 Players by Peter Efros. To those of you in the clubhouse tonight, you're fortunate that Peter's going to be selling the book here. So once again, thank you so much, Peter. Thanks for having me. Thank you.